0: David was his name. More is written about David in the Old Testament than any other character. More art has been inspired by the actions of David than anyone in history except Jesus Christ. He's a poet and an author. He's a musician and a worshiper. He's a leader and a king. He's a warrior, a gibberine, and a giant killer. He's a good shepherd that will leave 99 and go fight for that one that has been lost. His name is in the lineage of Jesus the Messiah. This day, this day, the capital of Israel has a nickname. It's called the City of David. The town he grew up in is the birthplace of the Messiah. God speaks of David and says he's the man after God's own heart. His name is David. Change the bolding covers. Today we meet David. Three times he'll be described for us. We're going to meet David now, I've been saying for five weeks now that the series in Samuel is one of the few hinges of history. In other words, history, after this epic, history is never the, the world is never the same. History is never the same. And today, today I'm going to show you the pin of that hinge that all the world swings on. One sentence, one period where all this happens. Now, we left the story last week in 1 Samuel chapter 15 And King Saul, uh, the people's choice for who should be king, he has rejected God and God has rejected him. He um, has placed himself above God by defining what is right and wrong and placed himself above God and what the definition of obedience is. And so now he's no longer God's king for Israel. He'll be the king of Israel for quite some time, but he's been rejected. And so chapter 5 First Samuel ends, and it says that God was grieving, having Saul to be king, and the chief judge, the priest, Samuel, was in mourning. God is grieving, and Samuel is in mourning. Like, what it could have been, what it should have been, and they're in this state of despair. And so, today, we try to answer the question, is there any hope for Israel? How, do, how, how can this possibly be resuscitated? And th- that happens. This new day begins, like all days, like a normal day. It, like any other day. Doesn't seem to be all that special. Samuel's back home in Ramah, and he's wondering. Is gravity a relative thing, right? Is, 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 it, is there consistency in gravity? Some of you can appreciate this. Some days, does it feel like the, the pull from the center of the earth is stronger than others? You can't get out of bed because hope, hope will brighten your day and hope gives lightness to life. And if you take hope away, then in the high noon sun, you're surrounded by darkness. And there's no levity to your life anymore. You feel like you weigh a thousand pounds and you're being pulled through the mattress and the box spring itself. And the reason is, is because Samuel is spending too much time focusing on the present and he's lost perspective of the future. It's easy to do. So Samuel is in Ramah, in a state of abject depression. Down the road a little bit farther south is Saul of Gibeah. The king, the current king, he's checking his approval ratings because he cares more about what the people think about him than what God thinks about him. He cares more about the approval of the people than to be rejected by God. Sure, that's all. He'll be consistent all the way through. And then farther down south still, there's a boy, 12 years old, and he's waking up too, but he's carefree. He's waking up with his sheep in a field. And he's starting the day like he starts every day. He loads his sling, aims for a tree, no a limb, no a branch, no a twig, no a leaf. Whew. Got it. All the time he's singing. He's always singing. He's singing to his sheep. He's named all his sheep. He knows all his sheep. There's Lumpy and Fuzzy, right, and Goofy. Wait, wait, hold on. That's something else. And here's the point that I'm making, because I think the passage is making this very point. Here's the point. That when God decides to invade creation and right that which is wrong, it's going to appear very common. He's going to use common people doing common things, and then it's not so common. And this day that we're talking about, this is no ordinary day anymore, because this is a day that God dries his own tears. It starts in chapter 16, verse one, and Jehovah said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as the king over Israel? And have you ever heard that from God? I have. How long are you going to mourn about today or yesterday? Have you mourned truthfully? Have you suffered, you know, sufficiently? Okay. Can we get up now? <laughs> the Lord God himself, can we get up now and face forward? Let's go. And so the rest of the verse says, fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. One great translation says, I have provided for myself a king. Now it's my turn to choose. That's what's happening. And so Samuel gets up out of bed. He's got some hope now. He doesn't weigh a thousand pounds anymore. He can get up. The world is bright again. And so he heads south to Bethlehem. He has quite the reputation. And because of that, the elders meet him out at the city limits and say, hey, 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 <laughs> uh, are you coming to be nice because we heard in chapter 15, you cut a guy to pieces. So, like, you're not carrying a sword, and you're in a pretty good mood. It's all, it's all, and he says, it's all good. I'm just here to offer a sacrifice. Is that good? And here's what he says, verse 5. And Samuel said, yes, please. I'm coming in peace. I've come to sacrifice to Jehovah. Consecrate yourselves, and then come to sacrifice with me. And so then they, he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So consecrate means get ready for church. It means clean yourself up, get ready to go. The priest is about to have a worship service here. We're going to have a, a sacrifice. That means it kind of, they're, they're going to, you know, it brings a live animal. They're going to end up barbecuing that and all that that entails. Point is, it's a long process. I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit, but just, just it's not a short thing. It's not like when we just drive up here, get out of the car and in and out. This is going to take quite some time. And so Jesse is going to his family is consecrated. He says, hey, we're all cleaned up. Everybody showered. We're in our Sunday best. Here we go. And he's introducing his sons in birth order to Samuel. And Samuel sees the eldest and says, oh, my, my. Uh, it's in verse 6, he says, when, he, when when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely Jehovah's anointed stands before the Lord here. This is the guy. Now, Now, God's going to respond to Samuel's assumption, but I want you to be looking for the, how many visual terms are going to be used here because God is going to correct Samuel on the way he sees all of life. The reason that's important is that's one of the themes of First and Second Samuel. So verse 7 says, But Jehovah said to Samuel, No, 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 do not consider his appearance or his height. I have rejected him. Jehovah does not look at the things people look at people look at outward appearances but the lord looks at the heart one of the themes of samuel it's how we perceive reality and we've seen this in previous chapters where people look out and they see the number of troops and someone's not looking at whether or not god is going to show up when you and i this is samuel by the way he's a monk in our terms. He was raised as a child in a monastery, and yet he still has these very superficial values that you and I must have as well. And God says, no, no, look, you look on at things of life, and you see the physical, and you make decisions based on that. I look through their souls. God looks and sees not body, soul, spirit. He sees spirit, soul, body. That's his values. That's what he's looking for. Here's a great passage in Second Chronicles says, "The eyes of the Lord, right, range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully comm- committed to Him." That's what he's looking for. He's roaming the earth, looking to strengthen the souls of those people that are wholly committed to Him that's what he sees on this day that's what he's looking for that's the filter verse 8 Jesse called Abinadab the second born and has him pass in front of Samuel but Samuel said Jehovah has not chosen this one either and then he brings his third born and then his fourth and then his fifth and his sixth and his seventh seven boys pass before Samuel and Samuel was told it's going to be Jesse's son Jesse of Bethlehem and so then it all stops and so, Samuel, so you're Jesse, right? Yeah. And this is Bethlehem, right? Yeah, I'm Jesse of Bethlehem. Okay. Long pause. Is <laughs> Samuel has to ask. Do you have any other sons? And this, and, and, and this is what Jesse, he has to add. This is the first description. Oh, by the way, first impressions are huge in Old Testament narratives. This is the first description of this David character that we're going to hear. Verse 11. And so Jesse asks, or so he asks Jesse, uh, are, are these all the sons that you have? Uh, yeah, well, wait, you know what? They're still the youngest. Uh, he's tending sheep. So could I just uh, summarize what's happened here? Okay, we have the only judge and priest in all of Israel, and he's come to town to the point where the elders were trembling as they met him outside of town. He comes into town. He comes to Jesse's kind of neighborhood, says, Jesse, i am come to anoint one of your sons. Okay, we've got them all here. Great, it's a long church service. Think, you know, kind of a southern thing with a barbecue, with, right, with the sacrifice. Still no sign of this eighth son. The point is, he didn't miss the anointing. He's missed the whole day. There's been a long time for Jesse to go, wait, one, two, wait, Um. yeah, whatever, you know. I just want to say, there's no Mrs. Jesse in this whole story. I think she just left him. It's like, you can't remember the kids. So, just I'm, I'm, just, I'm trying to read the passage and see what it says. Jesse doesn't say, do you have another son? And Jesse does not say, oops. <laughs> yeah, I, as a matter of fact, I do. He doesn't say, wait, I'll go get him. Do you have another son? He says, yeah, he's the youngest, and he's a shepherd. Okay. A number of Bible scholars said that would be our way of saying he's a runt. See, he, he, now it's not like he forgot. He knows but he's the youngest and he's a shepherd. So didn't think you'd even wanna meet him. And so it is Samuel that gives the order, go get that boy and says, nobody sits down until he gets here. I think Samuel's an older man, he sits down because it says when he sees him, he stands up. So Samuel's the one, (laughs) Samuel's the one that goes, has him sent out. Now, now, Now you listen carefully because I want you to listen to the second description of of David and see if you see what I see, because it's it's somewhat obvious to me. So verse 12, um, he says, so he he sent for him and had him brought in, and now he was ruddy, reddish, you know, has beautiful eyes and handsome in appearance. And then the Lord said, rise up and anoint him. This is the one. Redheaded, bright, brilliant blue eyes. He's the short one in the family. Come on, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? He's Irish. Yes. David is the father of my people. It's, it's not in the Bible, but it's right there in my notes. It's right there. And listen, if he were Irish, look, can we just just describe for just a second? I mean, who else is going to go after a giant with a pocket full of rocks, right? You think that's crazy, but I've seen it happen a couple times on St. Patrick's Day. I mean, that this sort of thing breaks out regularly. I'm, it's Think about it. Let's entertain it for a while. We'll get back to that later. That's his description. Uh, Verse 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of Jehovah came powerfully upon David. And Samuel went on to Ramah. Powerfully upon him, flooded. Over him, one translation says. From that point on, the rest of his life, the power of God's spirit will reign over him. Told you it was a great day. I mean, is this an awesome day? Start off like a common day. It's not common anymore. That walk home must have been some kind of, wow, what were they thinking, right? Samuel on his way back to Ramah. David on the way. He goes right back to the fields. So Samuel's walking back going, I'm having a very difficult time making sense out of any of this. God is going to bring us a king from a boy whose father can't even remember to invite him to an event. I mean this with no disrespect. But I I can hear Samuel thinking, that God of Abraham, he's a rascal. You don't know what he'll do next. Because he's going to choose a boy to be the king. Who does that? You think he'll, like, send a baby to save the world someday? Maybe. And how is David, the shepherd boy, ever going to get noticed if his dad doesn't even know him? And then he's probably thinking how foolish he was to start his day feeling so hopeless and depressed. That must have been some walk home. David, <laughs> he's just a kid, preteen, teen 12 years old. Uh-huh, okay, great, got to get back. Finds the tree where he put his sling and his guitar, runs back to his sheep. Guess what sheep? The only friends he has, right? Guess what sheep? I'm going to be the next king. And God causes them all to laugh. <laughs> like that's going to happen. The sheep are laughing. The angels are laughing. Everyone's laughing. There's hope in Israel again, at least in one little field. Here's the point. The way it's written, some of the biggest problems have answers right in front of us and they're in the common. But sometimes we get too close to the present to see God working in the future. And we and we we need to be aware that God is working every day in common things and common ways, using common people. This passage this passage is the hinge of history. No, no, I'm sorry. It is the pin of the hinge of history. Let me show you in 13 and 14. Look what happens. So Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him. We know that in the presence of the brothers. And from that day forward, the spirit of Jehovah came powerfully upon David, and Samuel went to Ramah. Verse 14 says, and now the spirit of Jehovah has departed Saul, and an evil spirit from Jehovah has now tormented him. If you get the book of 1 Samuel and fold it in half, it would fold at chapter 16. If you fold at chapter 16 in half, plus or minus, it would come up to 13 and 14. You see that period? That is the pin of the hinge of all of history. Everything changes right then. It's a contrast. The Spirit of God came mightily upon David, and that same Spirit of God left Saul. Chapters 1 through 15, it is about Saul and Samuel, and from now on, 16 to the end, when he becomes king in 1st chapter of 2 Samuel, it's all about David. It's all about David. This is when everything, this is the new hope of Camelot. This is why you change your bulletin. It doesn't look the same anymore. There's a new man in town. He's a boy. His name is David, and he has a He's a heart after God. Could, could I just spend a little bit of time over here theologically in case some of you are nervous that it says, the Spirit of the Lord left Saul. That's an Old Testament uh, truth. It's not a New Testament truth. In the Old Testament, there, there was never a, for, for a complete forgiveness of sins. There wasn't a complete cleansing, uh, an alteration of the soul in, the es- in its essence and there was always just a hope of that event, and so the Spirit of God could never really move in, He could only rent. Okay, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, now we inherit the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that's what our souls look like now, completely transformed and the Spirit of God moves in there and says, looks like home. And that's why in Pentecost there's this graphic expression of the Spirit of God coming upon people, and it also says that we are sealed in that spirit. We're sealed in that spirit. So there's no mention of sealing in the Old Testament. couldn't happen, and there is now. So if, if that passage troubles you, don't let it. The hinge of history. We're on the other side of it now. In scene 2 of chapter 16, now it's talking about Saul's torment and torture. And it's because Saul has, been let, Saul has told God to leave him alone. There's a saying, we say to God, thy will be done, or God says to us, fine, thy will be done. And Saul is left now unprotected. He's haunted. He'll be terrorized. And this is how David will be recognized. This is how a shepherd boy gets found out in Saul's insanity. This is God doing all of the work and David playing a simple part of doing what's next. That's the way this is written. Look at verse 16 and 17, uh, one, of those, one of the guys uh, in context, one of, the, one of the helpers of Saul says, you know what, you know, you're kind of going crazy. What if, what if we got someone to sing you some songs? What if we got someone to play some music? Verse 16, so let our king command his servants here to search out for someone to play a guitar or a lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes to you and you will feel better. And so Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me now. Okay. How does God find his way into the throne room of Saul from a shepherd's field? It all pivots on this. Some guy in that throne room, that's an assistant of assistants says, so I know a guy, (laughs) really? That's, how we're, that's where we're betting all of hope for Israel? Yeah, I know this guy, see? He lives in Bethlehem, and we used to do gigs together, and he's really good. He's the son of Jesse. That's how David gets promoted. I'm, I don't have to make this up. Look at uh, verse 18. It says, he is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking, and Jehovah is with him. The point is... The way this story is being told, the author wants you and I to understand in this chaos, God is doing all the work. God is doing all the heavy lifting. God is doing his sovereign thing. Even in the context of free will and Saul's insanity, God still does what God wants to do. Watch it happen rapid fire now from 19 to 23. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David. Oh, he's with the sheep still, see? Verse 21, David came to Saul and entered into his service. Saul liked him very much. David became one of his armor bearers, like his chief intern now. And then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, hey, allow David to remain in my service. I am very pleased with him. Wow. So now he's a permanent favorite intern. Verse 23, whenever the Spirit of God, uh, from God, not of God, from God, came to Saul, on Saul, David would take up his guitar and play then relief would come on Saul, and he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. God is doing everything. God wrote this play. He's directing this play. He's produced this play. He's making this thing happen. This is about God moving him into position. This is about God promoting David from a field to a throne room. This is not David's selfish ambition. This is not David's goal. It's David's commitment to habit, what he can do. He does that well. He's really good at shepherding, and he's really good at guitar playing. That's what he does. That's what he's going to trust God for. The irony of this whole story is that Saul is the one that commands his replacement to move into his house. David is just doing what we do around here. One of our favorite verses is this, that we are God's workmanship created for good works in Jesus Christ before time, we should walk in those works. David is going, I'm just his workmanship created for good works ahead of time. I'll just do that. I'll just do those things that I'm made for. I'll just shepherd. I'll just worship. Now this message is especially important to us today because The world is crazy, and by crazy I really mean scary, and if I knew what revelations meant, I would be teaching revelations. It seems like end times to me. It's like not only are countries like on razor's edge, and they have thermonuclear capabilities, it seems like the planet's really mad at us too, right, Uh, with all the storms and the earthquakes, and the wildfires, and and listen, (laughs) and there's no place for truth anymore. If you're you're afraid and you find yourself overly nervous, I, I think this passage, this whole story, ought to encourage you to hear God is up to something. He's up to something very big through something very common. And what could be quite common is you just doing what God has called you to do for this very time, for such a time as this. We're all, Esther, we're all for such a time as this. And if we, if we get too consumed in the present, we're going to get so despairing and discouraged that we'll, without looking to the future where the hope is, where God's power is, we'll lose, we'll lose our way. Just, we just got to be good shepherds, man. Just learn to play the guitar better, right? Just do what the good works in Jesus Christ because this is what God's looking for. When he surveys this auditorium, here's what he's looking for. The eyes of Jehovah range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He just wants common people to do common things and trust him. Just play your part in the puzzle. And I know... We want to see the big box top, big picture. I think we'd be afraid of that. We're not, that's not what our job description is. Our job description is play the little piece of the puzzle that God has arranged before the beginning of time. Here is workmanship. Play your part. Just do that. Friends, I just, I, I'm trying to convince you that the, the stylistic way that Shakespeare here is writing is to show you of, of God's Ways so that the great king of Israel is the forgotten son. It, 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 no disrespect. God is a rascal and he will use whoever he wants, any way he wants, to make great things happen. Here, Robert. Uh, Alter is one of the great Old Testament uh, scholars. He's a Jewish scholar, and, and he's been a breakthrough scholar in helping people understand what the meanings of the Old Testament. Let me tell you what he writes about with David in this particular story. He says, David is kind of a male Cinderella left to his domestic chores instead of being invited to the very party. He's been excluded from any kind of consideration, but the, the, tending, but the tending of his flocks to which he's been relegated to, turns out to be the exact same thing that is needed to defeat Goliath in battle and later lead his people. The David story is also heightened by the stylized way of playing out the theme of the reversal of the prejudice of promoting the eldest son first that is rampant throughout Genesis and that culture. Instead of the elder brother or even a younger brother or even the seventh son, David, the eighth child is therefore not even there at all, and that's the son that God wants. That's the one that counts. The the point is is that God is going against all tradition, all expectations, what all the odds. That's a good way to put it. He's going against all odds, and he does that, friends. And back in those days, especially, this, this eldest son gets everything, and he's the chosen one. When does God do that? When does he play that favor? Let me go through the list. He chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He he chooses Jacob, not Esau. He chooses Moses, not Aaron. And it's it's to say, I don't have to play by your rules. I'll choose who I choose. I'm looking around to strengthen the hearts of the ones who are fully committed to me. That's what he's trying to do. And so he goes after and looks for and likes to use the unwanted woman, the woman who is old, the woman who is barren. That's why he goes with Sarah instead of Hagar and Leah instead of Rachel. And in this story, Hannah. He uses the woman that nobody wants and the son that everyone forgot. And he likes likes the weak and the foolish, not in spite of our weakness and foolishness. It is so that he can show himself strong and wise in our obedience Like Alter said, this is a Cinderella man, right, who's given the special gifts in his, right, in his isolation so that he will be able to be skilled in slaying giants and shepherding people. It's the common. It's the way God, it's the way God sees things. He sees things differently. He's looking for people whose hearts are dedicated to him and love to love other people. Love the Lord, love others. C.S. Lewis does a masterful job in illustrating this contrasting view of hierarchy, ours versus God's, in a wonderful book called The Great Divorce. It's a short book. I, I recommend reading it, I read it at least once a year. It's a story of people visiting heaven, just kind of the outer suburbs of heaven, from, from uh, hell, you know, some other place, and, and they're seeing the values of heaven displayed. And in one of these scenes, there's this a woman comes, and she has quite the entourage. She is of great importance, and her beauty is to the point where it's, he has to turn his head away. And, and while she's making her promenade, she's surrounded by young men and young women who are singing and dancing all around her. And Lewis' character that's visiting um, heaven, it'd be worth reading, so let me do that. So Lewis says, I can only partly now remember the unbearable beauty of her face, and so I said, is this? And then my guide said, no, it's not who you think it is. It's no one that you've ever heard of. On earth, her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived in golden green. Well, it seems that she must have been a person of enormous importance. I She was, but she was one of the great ones, the, one of the greatest ones that ever lived, but you'd never heard of her. Uh, don't you know that... What is fame on earth is not fame in heaven? They are two quite different things. Well, I said, she must have had a huge family. Look at all of her sons and daughters. And he said, no, she never had a one. And he says, well, then who are these every, he says, who are all these young men and women around her side? Every young man or boy that she ever met became her son. Even the ones who just brought her meat and left it on her back door. Every girl she met was her daughter. Everyone who came near her had his or her place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now the abundance of life that she has in Christ from the Father overflows into them. There is enough joy in the one little finger of this great saint to awaken the dead of an entire universe. He's saying, this woman... In her great love of God and her great love of other people is now displayed in heaven for who she really was all the time. But you never knew her. God uses common, common people doing common things and uses it mightily. Here's what he's looking for he's surveying all the world and he's looking to empower and strengthen. A man or a woman after his own heart. The theme of chapter 15 was, don't be Saul. The theme of chapter 16 is, be David. You are God's workmanship, created in Jesus Christ to do good works that were arranged before the foundations of the world. You should walk in those. David is his name. He's the gold standard of what it means to be a king. From this point forward, it will say to future kings, walk in the ways of King David. He is Arthur. He is an orphan boy with a heart so pure that he can release the, the sword from that stone. He is Cinderella, relegated to chores that no one wants to do, like washing feet but that all of his siblings want and desire what only he can possess. He's a Renaissance man. The depth and the breadth of his suffering is unparalleled. He will bury too many children. David is his name. And his greatness is found in the fact that he could be a simple shepherd And be content and patient and let God be God and be focused on the easy stuff. God will do the heavy lifting. I'll just do the next thing He tells me. You and I, we need to be like that. We need to be like David patient, content, trusting, with the eyes to see the things that God sees. That's the point of this passage. The chapter ends with everybody saying keep, you know, David's in Gibeah now. He's in the area of the throne, and people are saying, keep playing. Just keep playing, because when you stop, the king goes crazy. And it seems like maybe it's never ending. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, you hear a trumpet blow, because now the Philistines have entered Judah, the county, the state where David is from. And he's like, I got to get home. My dad has a very important thing for me to do. I have to run an errand for my dad. That's next week. It's a pretty good story. You should come back. You might have heard it before. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, I, uh, we lift up uh, this tremendous story of your sovereignty, your power, Your, your chest that's three and four moves so far ahead. And I'd ask that you would help us see that that's what's happening around us. And that we're not to see too far out because it, the, we can't do anything, but not too close to the present because then we just get paralyzed in fear. And so Lord, I'd, af- I'd ask you to help us understand what David did and he can just do what David can do. The good works in Jesus Christ that are right in front of us, that we would have a heart that you would stop and look at because it's fully devoted to you, and you would strengthen that heart. Let us be David, a man, a woman after God's own heart. Lord, make us that way. Cause us to desire those things and those things that are not that way. Would you cause us to not like those things? We, we desire to be your son, your daughter, your, your gift. We pray this in Jesus' name.